we conclude our sermon series in Romans 8, turning to Romans 8, chapter 8, and verses 35 through 39. We welcome those visiting among us today and invite you, if you would like, to look at the sermon outline on page 5 and then some extra notes for your later reading on page 6. Hear now the word of God. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors, through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God remains forever. Loving the books and different chapters of the Bible is like loving one's children. If we are wise, we will love them all equally and yet uniquely, appreciating God's handiwork in each one. So says Phil Riken. Phil preached on this passage, his final sermon as a pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. At that church, James Boyce had served there previously, and he'd written a hymn that has summarized the truths of the end of this great chapter of Romans 8. This is a treasure house of God's grace. The crown jewels are found here at the end of this chapter. It's a chapter to bring with you when you're young, And when you're old, when you're living, and one day when you're dying, it's a chapter to memorize, a chapter to come back to, from no condemnation under God's law, to no separation from God's love. And it is the love of God that we've seen the last few weeks and look at again today. That's not a Hollywood-type love where you escape into kind of some warm soup of endorphins. It's not what rock music says is love. What then is it? Well, today we'll see how we are brought to a conclusion in this chapter with a theme that is building to a crescendo. Perhaps the greatest ending to the greatest chapter in the greatest epistle in the greatest book the Bible ever written. We are at the mountaintops here. How do we capture the immensity of the love of God? How do we know we are secure in that love? That's what we'll look at today. First, what are the sufferings that threaten separation from God's love? Paul has been asking who questions, four of them. Since God is for us, who can be against us? The answer to all four is nobody. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? No one. Who is he who condemns? Nobody. 
And now the top grand staircase, the last step, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Again, no one. But like we saw last time, the question is who? So Paul is thinking here, remember from last week, of Satan. Satan's strategy, David Strain says, is exactly these four steps. Opposition, accusation, leading to condemnation, and separation from God's love. Why do many Christians have a hard time believing God loves them? Why do we struggle there? One reason is because Satan says, how could God love someone like you who sins in that way? That's last week. Today, Satan says, if God really loved you, these hardships and sufferings wouldn't be happening to you. That's how the who and the what combine, because he says, who will separate us? And then he goes into all these what's, seven of them, sufferings, painful circumstances, trials, because the devil will take those opportunities to try to derail our faith to try to undermine our assurance and confidence in the love of God. Every sorrow and suffering brings a unique temptation there. And Satan is behind them invisibly. Yes, it's the providence of God over it all. But maybe you've gone through a period of life when suffering has changed you. Maybe you know someone who once seemed outwardly to love the Lord and want to serve the Lord, but something happened. Suffering of some sort. And they have perhaps abandoned Christ and his church. In the providence of God, the amount of prosperity and suffering is different for every person. For many of us, however, the sobering reality is that the most difficult sufferings await us. And one of the callings of pastors and elders is to help equip all of us, and we're in it with you, for the day of trial, that our confidence in God will not be shaken in the trials that we face. Ray Ortland asked this, what would have to happen to prove that Jesus no longer loves you? That he has abandoned you? Paul begins to walk through seven things to say none of these things can do that. First, tribulation. Pressure. To be pressed down like grapes being squeezed in a wine press. Crushing weight. Difficult days. Perhaps you've gone through that. Perhaps you're in the middle of it. Maybe the loss of a job. Maybe being abused as a child. Maybe the death of a loved one. Revelation speaks of the great tribulation. The Bible has a whole theology of tribulation, loved ones, that some would say, well, God is going to take me out and rapture me up before I have to go through tribulations. Have you heard that before? Dispensational theology says, There's a great tribulation, which is Daniel's 70th week in Daniel 9. The final seven uh, seven years of human history, they say, the time after the church has been raptured to heaven, when the 144,000 literal number of ethnic Jews will be saved. 
That's a mouthful. This matters because I think, as Sinclair Ferguson says, a lot of times we fear suffering. And if we have an idea of a theology that says we're going to get zapped up and raptured up and not go through this, it changes how we live and how we think about suffering. The final period of human history, that 70th week in Daniel 9, is the whole period between the ascension and the return of Christ. This time we're in now is a period of tribulation. Romans 8 says that. Paul says, through many tribulations we enter the kingdom of heaven. In this world, you will have tribulation, Jesus says. John says, I'm a partner with you, Revelation 1, in the tribulation. It's a time of birth pains, Romans Romans 8, earlier in verses 18 to 25. It's a time that will escalate, Kevin DeYoung says. The great tribulation, well, he says, not different from earlier tribulations, but sufferings that increase, symbolized by the seals and the bowls and the trumpets in the book of Revelation. That's where history is headed, under the providence of God. Will that separate you from the love of Christ? Intensified sufferings? Paul says no. How about distress? Being confined is the idea. Inward agitation. Frustration. When your mind is turned in on itself, we all know that. It might be a sleepless night. It might be losing our car keys. It might be thinking about what's coming the next day. When our mind is not thinking of Christ, but it's just grinding inwardly on whatever it is that's coming up. Does losing your car keys lead to God not loving you? (laughs) Of course not, but in our distress, sometimes we can act that way. We can think, well, God, why didn't things go right in my life? We're inwardly agitated, and we can doubt God's love for us. Paul says, distress won't separate you from the love of God in Christ. How about persecution? being hunted down relentlessly. That's the picture here. In particular, persecution for naming the name of Jesus. Paul knew that. He was beaten, he was stoned, he was shipwrecked. He was killed, most likely by Nero. Persecution is something Paul knew. Peter knew that. Peter said, don't be surprised when fiery trials come upon you. This is what we can expect as Christians. It's the history of the Christian church over and over again. There was a fire in Hinckley, Minnesota, back in the 1890s. What happened in this fire is the fire created its own weather, hurricane-strength winds, plasma gas, and Hinckley and some nearby towns were completely flattened. Paul says these trials are painful, like burning fire. It's like a blaze that consumes. But God is refining his people in persecution. God is making us more like Christ in persecution. And it's not that God doesn't love us in persecution. I don't know what will happen in the future. None of us does. But whatever persecution is happening now and may await us, it's not a sign that God's love has abandoned us. 
What then about famine? The people in Turkey who are dealing with the aftermath of earthquakes. The millions of people around the world that don't have enough food to eat and that are malnourished and suffering in all sorts of horrible ways because they don't have enough food to eat. What about famine? How about nakedness? Poverty to the level that someone doesn't have clothes to wear. Do famine and nakedness separate someone from the love of Christ? Paul says no. Hebrews reminds us in chapter 13, verse 3, that if we are not experiencing things like this right now, and here we are today with plenty of food to eat and warm clothes, we shouldn't feel guilty about that. But if we're not experiencing famine, we should remember those who are. If we're not in prison, Hebrews says, remember those in prison. Remember those who are mistreated. Because you also are in the body. When one member of the body of Christ suffers, we all suffer. In the first century, if you're accused of being a Christian, you're arrested and put in jail, you weren't, weren't fed. Other Christians would bring food to you. That happened to Paul. They would bring clothes to you. They would bring books to Paul. Paul says, remember those who are suffering. When someone is in our hearts, we remember them, don't we? We pray for them. We think of a way to show kindness to them. Remember those who are in the bonds of homelessness and poverty, oppression and abuse, those who are refugees. Remember those who are shut-ins. Remember our elderly. Remember those who are in hospitals, in nursing homes, in chronic pain, dealing with sickness and physical challenges that we can't even imagine. Find tangible ways to love them, to remind them that in the midst of these things, that does not mean God's love has abandoned them or us. How about the sword? If someone is killed by the sword, does that mean God doesn't love them? Paul goes on. Stephen was a martyr. Paul himself would be. James. Early Christians who would be taken to the amphitheater in Rome and dressed in animal skins and torn to pieces by lions and by gladiators. Voice of the Martyrs talks of how this continues to happen suffering and the sword and being killed. Paul says, I'm going to quote from Psalm 44, not facing death, but being killed all the day long. The world is one vast slaughterhouse. It can be brutal to be a Christian. Physically, not spiritually, it's a wonderful thing to be a Christian. But we are regarded, Paul says, as sheep to be slaughtered. That shouldn't surprise us. We have a Savior who is the suffering servant, who was slaughtered for us, so that when we suffer, Paul says, it's for God's sake. See that? For your sake, God, we are being killed all the day long. Does that prove God doesn't love us? Paul says the opposite. No, it doesn't. In fact, in all these things, you are more than conquerors through Christ who loved you. Hyper-conquerors. Kids, like, you can be hyper when you have too much sugar and that ice cream hits you and you're just bouncing off the wall. Or mom and dad get hyper sometimes, don't they? If they have too much coffee, you say, 
Cool down, mom and dad. Hyper. How can those who are despised, rejected, exposed to famine and nakedness and sword be more than conquerors? It's not that the love of Christ takes us out of that. We just talked about that. It's not that you get kind of zapped up into another place and don't have to deal with it. It's not that the love of Christ means you're healed from all these things. Sometimes that happens in the providence of God. Someone is healed as we pray from a a sickness. Romans 8.37 says that our trials and struggles and sorrows are the battleground. The love of Christ, though, has already defeated your enemies. Sin and Satan and death itself. So you are a super conqueror. You're not the Dallas Cowboys who win on a Hail Mary touchdown pass in the 70s to beat the Vikings and go to the Super Bowl, and they invented that term Hail Mary because of that pass, and Drew Pearson caught it even though he pushed off. It's it's not a last-second, eke-out-of-victory kind of thing. You're the object of saving love in Christ, Emmaus wrote. It's not even close. It's a complete victory. How? Secondly, as you are assured of the unshakable promise of God's love for you in Christ. How do we capture this? If you want to know what love is, Look at how God loves. Not journey or the notebook. There is one true triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is love. Love is identical with his being, as is his justice, his righteousness, his holiness. All his attributes are infinite and identical. This is the simplicity and the incomprehensibility of God. So love, justice, and mercy are not three parts of God. That's who the one triune God is. Love requires an object to love. God is eternal, infinite, no beginning, no ending. God is love before he created anything. Whom did God love before he created the world? The answer is found in the Trinity. In the one being of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not that the Son eternally submits to the Father. Not that the Father is first, then the Son, then the Holy Spirit. No. Only one God. And what binds the three persons together is unity of being. And the relationship among them is defined by love. God is love because of the eternal trinity. Jesus says, the Father loves me. I love the Father. And you were created to enter into a fellowship of love with God. That fellowship of love that existed between the three persons of the Trinity before the world existed. Adam broke the covenant of works. He disobeyed God. And now by nature we are born hating God and hating our neighbor. But the good news of the gospel is Jesus came to redeem us out of that life of hatred and self-destruction to unite us to himself and to restore our fellowship with God.
One of the most amazing aspects of your salvation is that when God chooses to love you, it is with the love that is the same in character as the intra-Trinitarian love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's not that we first loved God. We read that in 1 John. But he first loved us. It's a sovereign love. Christianity then is not get yourself together. If you and your family are in a right state of mind, then come to church. Everyone's happy and everything's fine. No. God pursues and saves sinners. Well, we were loveless and unlovely by grace through faith in Jesus. Everything we have comes from the hand and love and purpose of God. That he has shown such love to a rebellious people like us. Where do we see the manifestation of this love of God? In the person and work of Christ. God didn't send an idea of love down. He sent his son. His only son. We see the measure of love in what it costs. God sent his only begotten son into the darkness and sin of this fallen world, the incarnation. But even that is not the height of God's love. That's seen in the glory of the cross. Paul asks in verse 35, who can separate us from the love of Christ? As Derek Thomas says, we learn a grammar lesson here. Is this speaking of your love for Jesus? Or of his love for you? If it's speaking of your love for Jesus, there's no assurance there. Because some days we say, yeah, I I love him, but not as much as I want. And some days we don't think much of him. We'd be in and out. He loves me, he loves me not. No, it's not my love for Christ. What this is speaking of is Christ's love for me. Yes, today, but in particular, it's a past tense pointing to the cross. Who can separate you from the love of Christ for you? Dear Christian, the gospel is not that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. The gospel is the glorious announcement, the good news, that God so loved the world that he sent his only beloved and eternal son into the world to save hell-deserving sinners like me and you. Sin is an affront to God's holiness. God's wrath is his settled disposition against all sin. Sin violates God's law. The law demands justice be done. God is just. He must punish sin. But God is also merciful. And even more, God is love. And God sent his son to die, not just any death, but a death that involved him satisfying the requirements of God's law and justice against sin. He is the wrath-appeasing sacrifice for our sins. This is one reason we love theology, by the way. Not to argue over minutiae, not to be prickly, but so that we can know how much God loves us. The cross is proof that God is love and that he is righteous. He is light. He is just. He is the justifier. God himself pays the costly price on the cross required by his justice out of his own determination to do what arises from his nature, which is love. 
Or kids, here's the simple version. The cross tells you Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. We never get beyond that. Today we will sing a mighty fortress is our God, Martin Luther. As Thomas tells us, probably written in 1529, when a plague befell Wittenberg, Germany, and many of Luther's friends died. He wrote this. Among other lines, here's one. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. We've sung that many times. What's that word? Thomas says, one word in the Greek, three words in English. It is finished. Jesus said those words in John 19. He accomplished your salvation. Redemption has been fulfilled for you and for me. The entirety of it. Through his life, death, and resurrection. On the cross, Jesus conquered. Jesus endured tribulation and distress and persecution and nakedness and danger and famine and sword. All of it. The curse of the law of God comes down on him. All the sufferings of Romans 8 and any sufferings you have outside of Romans 8, they cannot separate you from his love. Because Christ has triumphed over all these things. That's Paul's confidence. That's your confidence and mine. Not in our worthiness, but in Christ. The enemies of Christ thought they won. But in reality, through the weakness and the shame and the suffering of the cross, Christ conquered Satan and sin and death and hell. Through his resurrection, he defeated the powers of death. And if you are united to him by faith, through the Holy Spirit... He will manifest his life in yours, his sufferings in your sufferings. But like Christ, your sufferings will give way eventually to resurrection, Christian, and ultimate victory. Fesco says we have the victory not because of our strength and wisdom, but because of Christ's. So your, your sufferings are not a symbol of defeat. They embody the way of the cross through which God manifests his power in our weakness. We don't just survive in our trials then, loved ones. We conquer. Our own temptation and distress is to turn in on ourselves. Self-pity, self-righteousness. But instead of that, Christ ensures we triumph in the midst of them as we are trusting in him by faith. You can be sure of this. Emmaus Road, do you believe that? Paul says, I am persuaded, verse 38. Not an opinion I have. Not I'm looking within. I have an unshakable conviction. I am persuaded by the gospel, Paul says. As Ferguson says, it's all too possible to be persuaded externally of the truth of the gospel in our mind, but not inwardly in our hearts. We need the Holy Spirit, loved ones. We can't persuade one another. We can't persuade ourselves, but the Holy Spirit does. How? Through the preaching of the gospel. 
The Spirit writes the comfort of the gospel on our hearts and on our minds. The goal of preaching is not to fill our heads with knowledge, but to be persuaded by the Holy Spirit that God loves you. The greatest sorrow and burden you and I can lay on our Heavenly Father, the greatest unkindness we can do to him is to not believe he loves us. That's John Owen. That's the lie of Satan in the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve. God doesn't love you. God's stingy. Paul says, I want to pray that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith, that you would be rooted and grounded in love. That you would have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses all understanding. To be a Christian is to have roots sunk deeply in Christ. So hurricanes come, but the tree stands because it's in Christ. To be a Christian is to have a foundation of grounding in Christ the rock. So an earthquake comes, but in Christ it holds. This saving love of Jesus is poured out abundantly. As Derek Thomas says, some of us were raised, perhaps, in a home where we didn't know that our parents loved us. Mom and dad may have never told us they loved us and may not have demonstrated they loved us. So we struggle with insecurity or looking for approval. And we sometimes think of God in that way, that he doesn't love me because I've had a bad day and he's out to get me. Or we've known a manipulative kind of love, which is not love at all where the person is unstable and controlling and we might intellectually think God loves me, but deep down, we think the love of Christ will run out. It'll dissolve like the snow melting in the spring. But Paul says the love of Christ doesn't run out. It never dissolves. It never melts. How do you know that? He loved you before the foundation of the world. He loved you by dying on the cross for you. He loves you still. He loves you on your worst day and your best day. He loves the nations. This love goes to all peoples, all tribes, all tongues, the elect in all places and times. And this love preserves you. Whatever comes today until your day of death. Paul says, I'm going to look everywhere in all the universe for somewhere or something that can separate you from the love of Christ. Can death do it? Death that breaks your heart? Death that still today you grieve over a loved one that has died 20 years ago? You ache? Because of the saving work of Christ, Death does not separate you from the love of God through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, for the Christian, death brings you into the presence of God. James Boyce, as a boy, attended 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia. By age 12, he wanted to be a pastor. Kids, some of you are about that age. Little did he know that one day he would be the pastor of the church he grew up in, in Philadelphia. He initiated a conference on theology that invited a 
then unknown professor named R.C. Sproul to come. Ligonier Ministries began in part out of this. It was the year 2000. He was scheduled to teach. Two hours before, he found out he had an aggressive form of cancer. A few weeks later, he preached his final sermon, May 7, 2000. The congregation was stunned. He said, should you pray for America? Well, you can do that if you want. But my general impression is that God, who is able to perform miracles, and certainly can, is also able to keep you from getting the problem in the first place. Above all, he said, pray for the glory of God. If you think of God glorifying himself in history, and you say, where in all of history has God glorified himself most? The answer is, he did it at the cross of Christ. And it wasn't by delivering Jesus from the cross. He could have. And yet that's where God is most glorified, he said. On June 15th, 2000, at age 61, James Montgomery Boyce died peacefully in his sleep, eight weeks after his diagnosis. Death can't separate us from Christ's love, nor can life. Why does Paul say life here? Because sometimes we're intoxicated by the pleasures of life and we lose sight of the love of God. Or troubles in life, a crumbling marriage, a wayward child, a dead spouse, a dead child, dreams we had, ambitions, they're shattered. And some people are more afraid of life than they are of death. We're more anxious of life. What if this happens? What if that happens? No what ifs, Emmaus Road, can separate you from the love of God in Christ. In the Lord of the Rings, the orcs were spreading. Theoden moved his people to Helm's Deep. Remember this? He was confident that that place would hold. Bring them on, he said. 10,000 are coming. But he's wrong. The wall is breached. The king is wide-eyed. He says to Aragorn, the world changes. All that once was strong now proves unsure. How can any tower withstand such numbers and reckless hatred? Beloved, things that once seemed secure are now crumbling if we put our confidence into something that gives way, the things of this world, where does that leave us? We find our identity and confidence in something that never changes. Christ and his love for you. Life cannot separate you from God's love. Nor can angels or demons or powers or Satan or things present, what you're going through right now, or whatever is to come. The future. The passage of time separates us from loved ones. It separates one generation from another. One day we won't be what we are today. We can be fearful of change, seasons of uncertainty. But time cannot separate you from God's love. Neither height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation. Not Alzheimer's. Not cancer, not radiation, not chemotherapy, 
In the 400s, the Vandals, a Germanic tribe, overran Rome. Augustine was an old man. They turned to North Africa. His friends urged him to flee. He was 75. He said, my flock needs me now more than ever. He stayed. He spent his final days there loving his flock. And he died. And he went to be with the Lord. Those Christians who died and are with Jesus today are happier than you and I are, but they are not more secure in Christ than you and I are right now. No space, no time where you're separated from God's love. But perhaps you are here today or watching online and you don't know the saving love in Christ. Perhaps God is your enemy. Your conscience testifies You flee when no one's pursuing. And as you sit here, you are not under God's saving love, perhaps, but under his wrath and condemnation. And before you is the gaping mouth of hell, and your trials are a precursor of hell. But you hear today the remarkable love of God, the outward call of God in the gospel. Come to God through faith in Jesus, repent of your sin, and enjoy forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and the love of God forever. Because when God calls you into fellowship and brings you and unites you to his son, nothing can tear you away. This love of Christ will not let you go. One thing I want to remind our kids over and over is God loves you. And a while back, our five-year-old turned to me and said, Daddy, God loves you too. Kids need to hear that. Moms and dads need to hear that. Grandmas and grandpas, are you persuaded of God's love for you in Christ today? God will preserve you. Why do we not give up on God in the midst of the pain of the world? Because God loves us. And so I want you to picture yourself having finished the race, dwelling in glory, face to face with Jesus, seeing him in his beauty and splendor for millennia, for eternity in his presence, you will still discover new glories in the love of Christ. You will never, never fathom the bottom. You will never get to the edge. You will never cease to see fresh beauties and love in Jesus. Emmaus Road, Pilgrims on the Journey, Remember in all your sufferings, in Christ you are more than conquerors. And nothing can separate you from the love of God. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.